Okay, Assalamu alaikum everyone. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to an another another amazing uh, Saturday session, a Q&A for Surah Al-Hajj and Surah Al-Fat. Um, inshallah, um, it's going to be a great opportunity to re-engage with these two incredible surahs. Um, of course, I uh, first want to just call out again the incredible khutbah from yesterday, which is called um, On Diversity and Inheriting Gold. Will the Quran testify for or against us? And in it, um, one of the things that was so powerful is Sheikh talks about the majesty of diversity and skin color and difference among us as part of God's plan, part of God's creation, and emphasizes, especially in a world where there's so much racism, so much um, classism and division, um, that when we as Muslims um, or as humanity don't honor this diversity and creation um, as a way to get to know the divine, we are really dishonoring God. Um, and you know, it's, um, he makes the, a really important point that this is something that is unique to the Islamic message and that interestingly had, you know, either the Jews or the Christians had something like this in the Old Testament or the New Testament that really pointed out you know, the majesty of diversity as part of God's plan that ultimately probably would have been held against us today in this Islamophobic age. But this is like one of these pieces of gold that is dropped you know, from the Quran to us as human beings, um, you know, as Muslims. And we could take this bit of gold and run with it as, you know, as with so much gold that's in the Quran, especially as we're finding here today and or, you know, in, in the halakas here, um, and how much opportunity that we have as bearers of this message to really advance Muslims and humanity forward. But that ultimately, you know, when the Quran as a gift is given to us as Muslims and we don't honor it and we don't, you know, use these, these you know, bits of gold and, and move them forward, then rather than being a gift to us, um, the Quran can actually become, um, you know, a, a testimony against us and what we, what we didn't do in upholding um, our responsibility. And it was um, just an incredible khutbah as always. Um, and, you know, really um, underscores, again, just... The, the racism um, in our world, um, especially, unfortunately, against Muslims. And, um, you know, this was sort of interesting because, I mean, I, I always say there's no coincidences. So I was sort of cruising around on Facebook um, last night and found a group um, where a, a woman had posted this uh, message. And I thought I would share this with you because it was sort of um, pertinent. Um, so she says to the group, Salam, I am providing rishta matchmaking um, for our community for free. Please message me your son or daughter's profile. Um, and I'm uh, only going to introduce families and, you know, I'm not collecting um, pictures. You can exchange, you know, with families on your own. But here are the details that I need. And so here's the, the detail list. Number one, gender. Number two, hijabi or non-hijabi. Number three, marital status, single, never married, divorced, or other. Then age, height, ethnicity, religious sect, language, citizen status, city living, city living in, right? Education, job, traits and description, interests, and then contact number. So this was really striking to me. I thought, okay, so number one, obviously gender two, or, or, you know, really at the top of the list, hijabi or non-hijabi, um, you know, and then on down the line. And I thought to myself, okay, where is the section on, you know, piety? Does this person pray? Does this person have a religious education or anything that has to do with what would presumably 
identify you as a Muslim or what should be important to you. Um, and it reminded me of something that I had written um, many years ago, many, many moons ago. Um, I had written a column um, for Muslim Girl magazine where I was able to share a lot of what I had learned um, from uh, the sheikh. And this was actually, I wanted to share this because actually this came up also in another conversation I had during the week about marriage criteria. And this was something that, um, that Sheikh actually shared with me very early on um, when we met, I think even before we were married. And so let me just take a, a little excerpt of this because I'd never heard this anywhere before. Um, he says, the vast majority of jurists agree that the most important criteria for marriage or choosing a marital partner in order of priority are one, the person's level of piety, two, the person's level of Islamic knowledge, three, the degree to which a person has good manners, four, the person's family upbringing and the quality of their family, and five, lastly, then five, the person's looks, personality, and personal habits. And in addition, there are you know, other lessons in our tradition um, about how to achieve a successful marriage. And Sheikh talks about this in actually um, a very um, wonderful series on marriage and divorce, which um, is available. It's a halakha that went on, I think, for eight sessions or so. It's available on our SoundCloud channel, the Suli SoundCloud channel. Um, and these are you know, traditions of the Prophet that give a lot of insight into you know, what makes a, a you know, uh, successful marriage and so you know really when when you um, compare it's really striking and you know just you can't help but think like this is really you know one place one start where a lot of change can happen you know to improve our, our world um, and our situation hopefully as Muslims um, and so you know the the talk or the khutbah yesterday was just so apropos about you know racism um, and how that's you know, something that's so counter to um, our tradition. And this was something from so from 1400 years ago, before even race and critical race studies and all of these other issues um, even became, you know, on our radar at all. So um, I just thought I would share that um, for whatever that's worth. Um, you know, it's, it was really powerful for me and, and knowing those criteria, um, alhamdulillah, I feel like, you know, well, alhamdulillah, look who I ended up with, but alhamdulillah, you know, it's like, these are things that you wish you knew um, and that you want to share with, you know, with your kids and your friends, um, things that are part of our tradition that are so valuable for you know, setting the course of your life. Um, anyway, um, with that, I am so excited to jump into the Q&A um, for these two suras. And, um, you know, of course, uh, unless you have something that you'd like to start with, um, my favorite jumping off point is just to ask you about your engagement with, you know, Surah Hajj and Surah Fat and where you were and what was, um, you know, occupying your your mind, your life, your um, inquiry, and your research. So thank you for joining us, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. 
اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقهوا قولي. Try to okay. So first, Surah Al-Hajj. Um, I remember that I, um, for some reason, it just stuck with me that I focused on Surah Al-Hajj uh, after Surah Al-Nur. Um, I mean, I, I've, um, what, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering exactly, um, where I was or what I was doing, um, um, but, I was always under the impression that Surah Al-Hajj, um, and this is just from the, from, you know, an Islamic education, that Surah Al-Hajj was um, affirming or mandating the obligation of Hajj upon Muslims. But I had not, and I had not noticed that any real emphasis on the fact that in, indeed it was not uh, revealed after Surah Al-Nur um, as as you, you've, as I've read in in many sources, that in fact Surah Al-Hajj was um, revealed at the time of the Hijra. And once you you learn that, once you realize that Surah Al-Hajj was actually revealed at this critical point at the time of Hijra. It, if you're looking at, at, at this as a legal legislation, it made little sense for Hajj to be decreed at the time. If you are, if we are talking about the, the Quranic uh, philosophy in legislating, then I would have expected Hajj to be legislated um, later. I mean, it would have made sense, for instance, if it was legislated at the time of the Surah Al-Fatih is revealed. But that wasn't the case. And the fact that it's revealed at the time of Hijrah, then 
the, the, that sort of opened the door to other things. The, the fact that Surat al-Hajj um, is really, it, it, yes, it, it mentions al-Hajj, but the point is not to legislate al-Hajj. That, that is not the point. In, in fact, it's sort of the, it assumes that the followers of the Prophet ﷺ already understood what Hajj, the importance of Hajj is. But this, the, the, the way it talks about the cycles of human life or the cycle of human life, and the way that it talks about time and space, and the way that at this critical point in Hijra, it, as Muslims are leaving Mecca, and they don't know whether they're going to ever see Mecca again, and many of them didn't, you know, those who died um, um, didn't see Mecca again. Um, and they don't, I mean, there's no reason for them to believe that they will, at this point, um, um, I mean, I think it would have been quite a wild idea that they're going to someday conquer Quraysh and control Mecca. Um, you know, Surah Al-Hajj, the first time you have the permission to fight, just a license to defend yourself through the use of arms um, is in Surat al-Hajj. So then you, you ask these questions of, you know, you're, you're, you're standing at the doorstep of what you sense is a message um, that It's a more existential message. It's not just about Hajj, but it is about our very existence and the, the very reason to be for us as Muslims. Um, and so then, then you try to get a sense or to the extent possible of the impact, the way that the early, especially the companions um, had interacted with Surat al-Hajj, you know, what type of impact it had upon them. And this, this, then, I mean, among the many, there are many different things that you notice, but among them is that Surat al-Hajj becomes, for, for instance, quite influential in the Sufi tradition. So it, it's clear that generations of Muslims un, understood it existentially. And, and you get among much later Muslims, you know, especially with figures like Jilani or Ibn Arabi, some references about the nature of time and space that are extremely intriguing, inspired by Surat al-Hajj. Um, 
Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's sort of embarrassing to say, but Surah Al-Hajj went from a, a surah that um, I had no idea how critical of a surah it is until after the full journey. Then it, it you realize that, in fact, it is a foundational surah for the entire Medina period. And that when you read, for instance, that such and such companion or such and such companion would read Surah Al-Hajj uh, every night or um, would read it in Shafa or would uh, when they prayed Shafa or when they uh, prayed Salat um, 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 al or then you start understanding what Surah Al-Hajj was about, that the the way it, people interacted with it, and especially the the companions that um, were quite close to the Prophet I mean, those who have been around from the time of Hijrah, not the late comers to Islam. Um, Yeah. Now, Surah Al-Fatih is is has always been. You you know that Surah Al-Fatih is historically tied to the events in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So that's a, a surah uh, that historically dates itself. It's talking about a, a very particular set of historical events. But there what you there are several fascinating things that you notice about the surah once you delve into it is that um, the amount of predictions as to what will transpire in the future. And when you, and I've dealt with Surah Al-Fatih, it was among the last surah that I've dealt with in the Quran. Um, I actually thought initially, um, you know, you, you read that Surah Al-Fatih was um, revealed after Surah Al-Nisa, which is impossible. I mean, Surah Al-Nisa is the force uh, Hijri year and Surah Al-Fatih is uh, the sixth Hijri year. So uh, the chronology, as reported, is wrong. Uh, but then Surah Al-Fatih, the amount of historical predictions, the tone of the Surah in talking to Muslims about their future is very different than earlier source. Here, it is specifically, literally informing the people who uh, engaged in the Bayat Rudwan, in the Pledge of Rudwan, the, the Pledge Under the Tree, and who, in fact, and it, it's, 
it's very striking that it, it, those who were so committed that they embarked not on a battle, but on a mission of peace. And it comes to those people, the ones who were willing to, to commit themselves to a mission which, in which they could be slaughtered without much of a fight. And it chooses this opportunity to then tell them something about what will happen in the future. It gives you, it, I mean, it, it, the striking thing, it, it gave me a very strong sense of, you know, before you have grounds to object or whine or complain um, or protest or say it's not fair or the extent to which you have to prove yourself. The extent to which, I mean, and subhanAllah, of course, I, I didn't, uh, this came only in the presentation here, that Surat al-Hajj talks about those who worship God on an edge. That, you know, if things are going their way, they're happy. Things are not going their way, they fall apart and they despair. And then the embodiment of what that means we see in Surah Al-Fatih because those who gave the, the, the pledge under the tree were not those who worshipped God at an edge. And in fact, you can completely imagine those who do worship God at an edge, you know, just borderline um, conviction you know, wavering type of conviction are, are in fact told by God that you are not allowed to join us when we go to war again. Um, now, in, in, in every... When, especially the Quran of Medina, Quran of Medina is often talking about events, historical events that unfolded at the time of the Prophet But interpretively, the question that a faithful interpreter would have to ask themselves is that why would God choose to address a particular historical event, if you will, what is the anecdotal lesson that God is communicating to us? We will never, we cannot wait around to reproduce what the Prophet ﷺ had for the Quran to be relevant. And this is, again, this is part of the Muslim alienation from the Quran, that if you basically want to wait around to have a faithful group of people like Al-Bayt and like the companions of the Prophet who 
gather around a central figure who is prophet-like. And then the Quran of Medina would become relevant to you. Um, that's a failed project. The Quran of Mecca is the foundation for the Quran of Medina, and the Quran of Medina must have a constant relevance to human beings on, on a steady and constant, uh, in a steady and constant dynamic. And so both of these soar because they are so embedded in a, in, a, in a historical circumstance, especially, of course, in Fatah, um, the, the, the question that, that I that, you know, pursued in research is what is the takeaway for the average human being who might never have the opportunity of encountering a set of historical circumstance even anywhere similar to what the Prophet ﷺ encountered. What is the ethical moral lesson that um, we end up with? Um, Surah Al-Fatih was towards, towards, I mean, it was about a year before the end of my journey with the Quran, or, or I mean, the, my journey never ends with the Quran, but I mean, the, the, what became the project of Lumen. Um, I would think Surah Al-Hajj was probably a year before that, or maybe even more than a year before that. Um, which is a year after we moved to Thousand Oaks. So what year is that? 2015. <clears throat> so Hajj was, so we... No, no, so no, then it was more than that because I, I think, I remember Hajj, I was still working on Hajj in 2016. Yeah. So, so we that, were in Thousand Oaks. Uh, yeah, after moving to Thousand mm -hmm. Oaks, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'll maybe remember other things as we go on, but um, um, but you you know I have to say again because you 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 raised this before and and this is something that I've struggled with a lot in Surah in fact you you have these tribes that and, and this is the, the the most the most unnerving thing is that you have these tribes who do a very human thing they they sort of look at the matter rationally they calculate the cost and benefit mm -hmm. and they say you're going to go because you had a vision, you're going to go present yourself, literally hand your neck out to Mecca. You, you're like, you're going to go without weapons, dressed in ihram, so you're, you're not fighting clothes. 
no war gear, and and all Mecca, and this is the same Mecca that had tried to assassinate you, and this is the same Mecca that formed an alliance and we we you know laid siege to Medina. Um, And when they went to the Prophet they didn't say to him, you're wrong, we don't want to follow you. They did a very human thing. They were dishonest. They made excuses. We're busy, our children, our jobs, our business, our, they, and again, very struck by the fact that the, the style of the Prophet والسلام, he, he knew they were lying. He knew that these were excuses. He simply kept quiet. He didn't say, yes, no problem, stay home. He just simply did not comment, didn't respond. And they took that as an excuse to defer to their whims. And, and I've asked myself, like I think every Muslim should ask themselves this, what would have been my position if I was there at the time? The type of faith and conviction, it's, I mean, and we saw that again with Laylatul uh, Qadr, when the Prophet said, Isra' wal Maraj, when the Prophet, you know, um, not Laylatul Qadr, Isra' wal Maraj, when the Prophet says, uh, you know, I, I've journeyed to Jerusalem, the type of Iman that would say, I surrender. I am fully in, and even if ultimately the the cost is I give up everything on this earth, um, and then of course to ask the, the the logical question: Why would God share with us that standard of iman? And as I said, you know, if you're waiting around and you, as a lot of Muslims, if they're honest with themselves, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, we, we would be very committed if there was a real Muslim ummah and there was a real cause and we real conviction and, you know, that cop-out, which renders the Quran irrelevant. How can you show this type of conviction in the circumstances of your life? Because that has even affected my career. I mean, when everyone that, that uh, knows how the, the, um, the um, academia, academia is, um, Unfortunately, academics are, the, the, the majority of academics for the majority of time are cowards. 
um, they use the sophistication of academic language and sophistication of academic constructs to keep themselves out of trouble by, ne by negotiating marginality. Anytime you are pressed and saying, are you saying X? You say, well, you know, I'm not really, well, I'm saying X, Y, Z, and, you know, 10 other letters. And I know just from, you know, many life experience that the attitude that you confront with a lot of Muslims is, oh, well, yeah, you know, it made sense for that type of bay'at al-Rudwan, you know, that, that, that pledge given under the tree. It made sense because the prophet was around, because there was this Muslim state, because, because, and it, well, it, then it, it, and it reaches the point, I mean, that same type of frame of mind, that same type of attitude is embodied, is epitomized in the approach of someone like um, uh, Mahmoud Taha and his student Abdullah Naim, who told you, oh, the Quran of Medina is abrogated. Why? Because they're, what they're saying is, oh, the Quran of Medina addressed a specific historical circumstance. Well, we don't have this historical circumstance, so it's irrelevant. But that, that's that, that, but what they've articulated, what a lot of Muslims feel and do anyway. They just articulated it. So if, the truth of the matter is, is that we do treat much of the Quran of Medina as irrelevant. But this is the thing. When you treat the Quran of Medina as irrelevant, there is no way of upholding the Quran of Mecca. Because if you have ethical abstractions, but no case studies of these ethical abstractions, the entire enterprise just crashes down. Ethical abstractions without any concrete examples lead you nowhere. This methodology of what is the ethical example that is being illustrated here? What is the takeaway? And so if, if this is the sacrifice they were making, how that does that translate into the sacrifice I should be making in my life under my circumstance? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, that has been like a guiding principle throughout this journey. Uh, and especially with these sort like al ahzab you know you you have a siege and people who say we need to go protect our family i completely can completely see myself doing that in a moment of weakness uh you know you're on hijra and you're being given permission to to 
to fight and you're sad because you're leaving your homeland, the Quraysh has taken your home, your property, you've sacrificed everything, you don't have a job, you're poor, you're going to go start a new life and the Quran is talking to you about primordial time and primordial ethics and and you know i again at a moment of weakness you can you can you can see yourself if you're being honest with yourself see yourself saying what is this you know i don't have time to listen to this i, I need to figure out how you know how am i going to take care of myself where am i going to live how am I going to take care of it? You know, isn't it enough that I've just abandoned everything and, and just going on this journey for Allah? I mean, I have to sit there and think about how God created the space for Ibrahim. That, that, and what is this? You, you, you call for prayer and people will come from all over the world to worship God. Well, we've just been kicked out of this place. And you're telling me people are going to come all over the world to worship God? I mean... Again, why would God give us these examples? And then you come to Al-Fatih, and you know, we've just finished a peace treaty that sounds like a treaty of submission, an unequal treaty. And after you know, going on what felt like a suicide mission, and the Quran comes and says, you know, you're going to enter a new stage where the, the real challenge is that you're going to fight people who are more powerful than the people, you, any of the people you fought before. Um, Allah wouldn't put these types of discourses if these type of these courses were not intended to be elevating, to, to help you grow up you can ignore them, but then the Quran becomes then 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 exactly like the khutbah is talking about. Then you've God has given you the book, and you've done nothing with it. Or you could take these these messages to heart, and then you must grow. Alhamdulillah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, there's always, um, it's just so so sobering. Um, and it's, you know, it reminds me, like, you know, you, you sit here and you've dedicated your last two years, you know, really focused on the Quran. And so when you were saying, like, people say, yeah, you know, if I lived in the time of the Prophet, I would have, you know, been there. It would have been different because the prophet was there, and these circumstances happened, and all of that. And it just reminds me, like, you know, we're here studying the Quran, and and it's it's like such a small audience that even cares about what we're doing. And um, so it's very natural to just think, yeah, what what would I have done? And actually, the, these this whole experience with with the halakas has made me very grateful that i was not alive at the time of the prophet <laughs> like there's no way it was so difficult um but alhamdulillah you know this is 
such an incredible um, gift. Let, let me open it up to um, people here first with anyone, if anyone has any questions. Yeah? Yeah, okay, do you want to start? Thank you. Thank you, Sheikh. Uh, my questions are about Surah Kaj. Um, would it be correct to understand, um, given the timing of, I, I was also perplexed by the, the timing of the revelation, uh, given that it was during the Hijrah, and it's a time when you're leaving. You're leaving Mecca. You, mm. You're kind of putting Mecca in, in on the back burner in your mind and um, thinking about, okay, how do we establish um, how do we establish a new life and a new home and build here, you know, for an indefinite period of time? And is it correct to understand the surah in a way of like, ultimately your objective is is still Mecca? Don't you're you're going to get distracted with all kinds of things that you have to do in Medina, which is clearly still important. But the ultimate objective is is Mecca, and this has to be. It, it is the responsibility of these Muslims at this time. To uh, God is directly telling you, you have to take Mecca back. This can't. Is that correct? And then um, to follow up, uh, is is there a relationship between Mecca, you know, or, or a, a ten king for the Arab and Mecca yeah. itself? Um, I mean, okay. What's fascinating? I mean, this is again. Um, in that Surah Al-Hajj, it could be understood as that is what is implied, but it doesn't say explicitly that you must take Mecca back. In fact, what it says, it talks about those who in Mecca nahum fil ard those who, if empowered, will they will they, they will establish prayer and zakah charity and the obligation of al amr bil ma'ruf and nahi anil munkar which is the most, the core obligation for all normative ethical duties. Um, and then Surah Al-Hajj ends with the call to Al-Jihad Fillah. So it, you know, it could have it could the express language could have said that you have an obligation to perform jihad to capture Mecca, but it doesn't, and it doesn't say it explicitly. It, putting if you maybe maybe. Well, actually, let me strike that. It's not maybe. I think that the danger in saying this is about recapturing Mecca is that then it would have become a sort of a nationalistic cause. You've been kicked out of Mecca. 
so now you have an obligation to to fight over territory and then it could have easily gone very wrong then it you know it all becomes about boundaries and territories and i think it's quite intentional that allah communicates to muslims why mecca because this is the the spot revealed to the prophet ibrahim and this is the 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 spot chosen by allah for tawhid but surah al-hajj i think quite intentionally doesn't make it about territories but makes it about tamkin fil ard and what you do after tamkin fil ard and makes it about a jihad fillah so it's it's like saying before we even talk about land or territory you have an obligation your jihad has to be a jihad to come closer to Allah because this is ultimately what it, it this is the starting point there is no way forward for anything else and with the you know the amazing subtlety of the Quran is that it said you know وَجَاهَدُوا فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ جِهَادِهِ that at the same time you know this is not about uh, doing what following a, a law of ritual and and practice that is this is not what jihad means this is not a, it's not about following a difficult or a strenuous um, a, a, a law of rituals that's not a jihad for Allah. but then right in that same ayah toward the closing of surah al-hajj we are reminded again that this is millat Ibrahim, millat abikum Ibrahim, huwa sammakum al-Muslimin. That it is as if the jihad is not just to grow in Allah, but to also understand your relationship to the message of Tawheed from the beginning of time to so the, the the challenge is not fulfilled muslims by simply uh, by doing the what what um what nationalists do by you know celebrating the prophet muhammad and and that's it and saying you know it's all about muhammad the challenge is not met by saying you know our let's make medina better than any other place in the world the challenge is not met by saying let's do everything to reconquer our uh, abandoned homes. The, the remarkable thing is that the Quran persistently speaks the language of morality and ethics for those who understand the Quran. It never becomes about land it never becomes about boundaries it never becomes about identity it, it's it's always the language of substantive morality 
Um, oh, and of course, not to forget, we cannot forget that Surah Al-Hajj closes with the theme of witnessing. That then it comes and it tells these migrants who are embarking upon this, this hijrah that you, in the same way that the Prophet is going to bear witness as to your morality, you have an obligation to bear witness for God as to the morality of yourselves and those that you encounter. This is um, you know the, 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 the world of hadith preserves narrations in which the Prophet is deeply touched by God telling him that you have an obligation to bear witness um, for God as to what as to Muslims, but it but it didn't preserve for us the impact on Muslims when they're told that. Because if if we are if we read that this was striking to the Prophet, well, that's only half the equation. It's half the, what the Prophet ﷺ has to bear witness to is only half of the equation. The other equation is that what Muslims have to bear witness to, and you you get into when you read, especially in adab, when when you read literature. Um, you try to understand why early Muslims or what was often cited by early Muslims as to the sponge factor, the factor that they, the fact that they became like an, uh, a, a civilizational sponge, um, taking in the sciences and the knowledge systems and of of uh, from going from you know for centuries a fairly close society a society that honored habits and customs and traditions so much so that they've been doing the way they've been doing things in the heart of Arabia for centuries resisting all influences you know resisting even resisting Yemeni influences resisting Abyssinian influences resisting Persian, resisting Byzantian influence. And then suddenly they transform from that fairly closed mindset to a radically different mindset where now they are absorbing, just taking in um, the civilizations of those. And I, you, you find these tantalizing references, especially in adab or in poetry, it's on where they, where, um, you know, a, a quick reference to the endowment of Dar al-Hikmah is 
you know, or an early debate, do we call it Dar al-Hikmah or Dar al-Shahada? For me, that's extremely significant. You know, it's like an, like an archaeologist who's investigating. And when you see something like that, oh, wow, okay. So that concept of Shahada must have informed, because if the fact that they even have that discussion, it must have meant that that's the, the and of course, part of the, the journey of the Islamic civilization is going from the opening of the Muslim mind to the closing of the Muslim mind again because of dictatorship and, and despotism and the, the nature of empires. You know, it's like they, they uh, when diversity becomes a threat to centralized power and you know, centralized power tries to clap down again by after you know opening its doors. So, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Question. <clears throat> okay. Wait. Wait. No, wait. Did I mention the Actually, I'm not sure, but let's do it again. Oh, the dhikr? Yes, can you tell us the dhikr yeah, for the, both? The dhikr for uh, Surah Al-Hajj is 76 and 77. Okay, and how about for Fat? Oh, sorry, it's, uh, no, uh, I'm off one number, 77 and 78. Okay. And in Fat, it's 29, let me make sure. Yeah, it is 29. Message of good news. Um, 
the shahid, what I wanted to um, flag when I mentioned the Surah Al-Fatih is that the the um, the role of witnessing in the Quran is far more distinct than either in the Torah or the Injil. The, the, and when you notice that, especially when it occurs in, as it does in Surah Al-Fatih, as core to the role of prophecy, um, the shahada is necessarily a moral function. That you are your your very existence. It's like the the, the very idea of a shahid, of a idea of even a martyr. What is the what is why is a martyr referred to as a shahid? Is because someone who witnesses as to what ought to be by sacrificing their lives. Now, when we describe the function of the Prophet as a shahid, and we notice that Muslims were not given the description of being mundhirin or mubashirin by the Quran. But, but it was given, they were given the role of shuhada. So shuhada an So, which is, I mean, an, an interesting point because it's like you Muslims, if you are going to understand your own function, it is to bear witness for God, for God, as to the norms that you embody and other human beings embody. So it's an it's a it's a moral function rather than what often religious people think themselves of if they are warners or bringing of good they bring good news it's more like um like they're part of a of a competition like they're part of a of a, you know teams competing i'm bringing either a warning to you or i'm bringing good no the the function emphasized for muslims in the quran is that your function is it, it to put it bluntly is to bear witness for morality, bear witness for what is right, which is much closer, by the way, to the function of a muzakir, of someone who reminds, rather than someone who warns or someone who brings good news. Um, th that's the point that I. 
which is, I mean, interesting because in the Islamic, then you do find that in, in the, um, uh, in this, this what followed after Surah Al-Fatih, as we know, is that the Treaty of Hudaybiyah? Then, uh, as we talked about, allowed the spread of Islam. Most Islam spread during the few years of peace more than it had ever spread before. Um, and the the because Muslims have not written their own history, they have not noticed that it was an Orientalist that came and wrote the that famous book, um, the Preaching of Islam. Muslims themselves have not written the history of the preaching of Islam. We, we've written histories about the spread of Islam, al-futuhat al-Islamiyya. But if we would have written histories about the preaching of Islam, it is striking that Muslims, unlike Christians, refrain from describing their activity as either in Zar or as Mubashirin, um, um, which is something distinctly Christian. It, it is, it's as if, my sense is, it's as if both functions are too haughty, too arrogant. Um, the the missionaries of Islam, and, and, and again, it's it's very interesting that the missionaries were often merchants and traders who believed that they spread Islam by example rather than by actual preaching. All of these, I mean, if, if, if the day comes that Muslims actually become the authors of their own history, maybe there will be a great deal to learn. Sorry, can you just repeat again the, you used Arabic terms and I got like, so a mudhakar is more like someone who reminds Oh, mudhakar is someone, it, it, the, the Quran uses the word tazkir or mudhakar as someone who reminds. A reminder and describes the prophet as a reminder and not a reminder to people, not a controller of people. And there was a second word that you used. Um, what was the second word? Um, I'm not sure, but then when you went on and said that this is not about bringing good news and that these terms were haughty, what, which what were the terms that? Oh, oh, mubashir um, is the someone who is like an evangelist, someone who brings good news. And Munzer is someone who is a warner. Okay. Um, God is is a warner. And the Prophet is a warner. But Okay, thank you. Sharif, did you have a question? Anybody else have a question? Marwa? <laughs> okay, Joe. All right. Um I wanted to actually ask a question or a couple of questions, um, if that's okay. Um, at the end of Surah Fat, um, you you told us about obviously the idea of Muslims being one body, and um, 
you know, obviously the, the, the Sura went through the discussion of the different situations in which people, you know, questioned and they weren't loyal and then they made excuses and whatever. And then ultimately there was the core group of people that stayed with the Prophet and were loyal and really believed in just trusting Allah and surrendering everything and just, mm. right? So when we talk about one body, like who should we consider one body, like in our time? Because, you know, clearly, like, um, we learn so much in, I mean, in, in my mind with Surah Hajj and Surah Fath together, this idea of, um, you know, let Allah settle the differences between us. You know, you just focus on justice. You focus on, you know, um, empowerment. I mean, so th there's a message of stop fighting, right? You just focus on doing your yeah. part. And so with that, then would it be correct to say when we talk about, you know, we're one ummah, one body, just assume the best of everyone who claims to be Muslim and, you I mean, know? It, it, one, it, it doesn't mean that if we're one body that that all Muslims represent you or that you represent all Muslims. The the um, first, I mean, I mentioned the one body point, uh, especially as to when uh, what elicited the pledge under the tree by Atarudwan is that Osman went to negotiate and they thought Osman was killed. And the idea that that someone that they sent to represent them as Muslims would be betrayed and killed, something that meant that they, they 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 had no choice. They they all had to commit to having that having consequences follow from that. Now, but you you know, I mean, you notice that um, it what 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 elicited Bayat Rodwan, what elicited that pledge that okay we, we will we all promise that now we are going to fight to the last man and you know regardless of the consequences is is because Osman was on a function representing Muslims. I mean he he was going to negotiate on behalf of the Prophet and and his followers who were on this mission. But, so I mean, here, the, I can completely see modern Muslims, um, you know, they, 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 they well, ironically, I mean, you see this sense of, of solidarity and loyalty among non-Muslims, so among Israelis, for instance, or among um, white um, Europeans okay. or white Americans, uh, you see it much stronger than with Muslims today. You know, I can completely see Muslims. You know, if if uh, if one of them is betrayed, even if that person was 
representing them and or 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 looking out to their for their interests or speaking on their behalf or defending their rights i can completely see modern muslims making every excuse to basically ignore the the uh, you know the, the the fact that one of their own is is uh, betrayed and um and so on but I think what the point you're getting at, though, is this whole notion of one ummah. We are anyone that says the shahada, even if I have all the disagreements, uh, you know, all the theological disagreements with them. Their rights represent my rights because what I owe them as the Prophet ﷺ is justice. And what I mean by that, that if what what I owe them, if that if they commit injustice, then I owe I owe them the obligation of opposing their injustice, standing against their injustice, trying to get them to refrain from committing injustice. Um, and if they act justly, then as a fellow Muslim, I owe them aid and support. So when I, and this is, you know, when I speak about the injustice committed by fellow Muslims, the injustice committed in countries like Egypt or Syria or Saudi or it actually comes out of the, that sense of solidarity that we're all one. As the Prophet ﷺ said, you know, you must aid your Muslim brother and sister, uh, right or wrong. And when it's asked, well, you know, how can we aid them? Okay, we understand if they're right, but how do we? What do you mean aid them if they're wrong? He said by preventing them from committing what is wrong. The way I express this aid, that if if a Muslim acts immorally, I must speak against this immorality. Even that, that obligation is even far more the case than if a non-Muslim acts immorally. Now, of course, if they suffer injustice, then it goes without saying, then I must speak against the injustice that they suffer, regardless of whether I agree with them or I don't agree with them. I, you know, th this is um, the the very base. I mean, it, it, the people because they're again. This is a, a lack of education. The Sunnah of the Prophet is think that it, to be one is to overlook the the you know that you 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 cover up for your federal muslim if they're acting immorally no it, it's you actually have an obligation to prevent them from being immoral to stand up against it <clears throat> thank you i just also wanted to ask um 
So if, if I understand, like some, you know, the, your question when you're approaching these soras about, um, you know, like what is the takeaway for every human being who might never encounter this type of historical circumstance? You know, what is the lesson of these soras? So um, to me, it was very powerful, the idea that between both Fatah and Hajj, obviously the idea of trust and surrender, that I don't know what's right you know, only Allah knows you don't. So, you know, like Prophet Muhammad, had, peace be upon him, had a vision and, you know, we're going forward because we think this is going to happen and it actually doesn't happen and then other things happen and then ultimately we find that, it, you know, it's, it's a path to victory that we didn't anticipate. So, you know, the lesson very clearly is trust in Allah, surrender um, from, you know, the message from Hajj, you know, you fight for justice regardless of your differences. Um, the idea of, you know, tamkin fil ard is empowerment. If, you know, if you have empowerment, here's what you need to do with it. Um, and then something very beautiful that you said at the end of um, Surah Fat is that true faith spreads like seeds in search of fertile ground. Right. So when I put all of that together and I think about, okay, what does that mean for our time and what is on us? So I... Um, you know, especially for Muslims in America, you know, we have empowerment. We don't, you know, we have freedom more than any Muslim in any Muslim country. You know, we can speak our mind. We don't have to be afraid that someone's going to knock on our door at Fajr and, you know, take us, imprison us. Um, we have to f focus on justice. We have to trust in Allah. And the idea of spreading, you know, ideas and creating fertile ground, you know, as Muslims, then it's not about fighting with one another but it's about really creating that fertile ground or taking advantage of that fertile ground, thinking in how do we make this beautiful message most acceptable to people who are, are searching, you know, whether it's education, whether it's through art, whether it's through music, whether it's through science, showing that, you know, I, mm. I am at the forefront because I am Muslim and this is what, you know, created, I mean, is that the right way to understand kind of like all of these messages? Yeah, I mean, if we, it was a unique characteristic of prophethood that the Prophet would have a vision and that we would surrender to that vision, okay? That's something unique to the Prophet you might have you might have a relationship with someone that your heart and soul tells you that their vision comes from God but that's that's then surrendering to that vision is on you because you have that privity of experience but other people who do not have that privity of experience with that person, they're not part of that equation. So surrendering is to surrender to what you know is Allah's will, Allah's law, Allah's morality, Allah's ethics, Allah's virtue, so the the it, you know 
and the example is demonstrated from Surah Al-Fatih. But what you've said also, um, I, we, Muslims in the West waste a great deal of time um, um, how to, uh, bickering uh, with each other. Um, I don't try, for instance, someone who comes and says music is haram. Okay, if this is your sincere and true conviction, as, as long as you are representing it as your interpretation and as long as you are not confiscating my right to have a different interpretation, then Allah can settle the differences between us. I don't spend time you know, maybe there will be the initial attempt to present evidence if this person, you know, asks me to present evidence that they're wrong. But if they don't, I don't even, what, what the focus ought to be is exactly on finding the fertile grounds to plant. It's one thing, so what I focus on is, I don't believe music is haram, is to then focus on how I can make my engagement with music a testament to God's truth, to, to bring, to sprout the, this goodness. If you notice how much energy is Muslims flexing their muscles against each other um, rather than saying, okay, we disagree, let God settle it between us and let us focus on what good we can offer and we can present. I mean, that's a, a um, if you truly believe that you have a mission of goodness, you have good to offer the world, you, you can hardly, you, then your sense is time is, time is too short. Time is passing too fast, and I can hardly find enough time to offer the world all the good that I know I can offer witnessing for God. It is when people do not understand the good that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they find that they, they feel they can afford the time 
they can afford to waste the time in these side marginal battles uh, that are digressions from any goodness that you present. I mean, who, who, how do I put it? A truly gifted intellect, right, doesn't waste time bickering over bickering with petty intellects. A truly gifted intellect finds there is hardly enough time to even document all the bright ideas I have. So they're, they're very busy just getting it all down. And they don't have time for distractions. Anyone that wants to argue about something silly, oh, well, you know, thank you very much, you know, good luck, and you move on. That's exactly the nature of the, the nature of the relationship between goodness and the divine. When you are, when when the goodness of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala permeates your being, you can hardly find enough time to offer the world all the goodness that Allah inspires in you. So. Anyone that has, you know, wants to bicker about small things, anyone wants to be depressed, anyone wants to, you know, have a fit over this or that, it's like, okay, good luck, you know, thank you, thank you, I, I don't have fun. It is sadly when people don't have a beautiful relationship with Allah, that's when you find what you see in our modern world among Muslims. They don't have, they, they, their relationship with Allah is not about beauty. It's not about something real. Because Allah is beautiful. And there's no way you can truly have any, any understanding of the divine and not have beauty dripping out of your pores. So those folks who spend their time, you know, bickering about everything they bicker about, Including, by the way, what I find like uh, I was saying, like big, the big to do these days. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, in the Muslim world, this is in the Arab world. I should not in the entire Muslim world, but in the Arab world, big to do about Hakim and Naisaburi. Hakim Naisaburi was a scholar of Hadith. What is the big to do? Hakim Naisaburi died many, many centuries ago, and he wrote an appendix to Bukhari and Muslim. And all these people who want to prove that you shouldn't li listen to Hakim Naisaburi, not because he wasn't reliable, not because he wasn't a good scholar, not because it is because they believe he was a Shiite. And so all this big, and then sadly, those who are defending Hakim al-Naisaburi are not defending him by saying he was a good scholar, he was reliable, he was, no, they're defending him by saying he wasn't a Shiite. It's as if they're conceding the point. If he was a Shiite, then we would agree with you. We shouldn't listen to him. And then you, know, you know, 
hours. You, I mean, I can't even represent. People won't believe how many hours, how many scholars, how many lay people have jumped onto this whole thing. Uh, was he a Shi'i? Was he not a Shi'i? If he was a Shi'i, then we should throw away his books. If he wasn't a Shi'i, then he's okay. And you, I, you sit there and you wonder how much of the divine has penetrated the heart for this to become the issue. You, you're not even talking about what were the substantive hadith in Hakim al-Naisaburi's text. You're not talking about who were the rijal, who were the transmitters that he accepted or he rejected. You're not even, you are talking about whether someone who died centuries ago was a secret closet Shi'i or not. To what extent does this evidence a genuine relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? You see, I mean, what goodness are you sprouting that any 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 person, I mean, I, don't, I actually uh, saw like this, uh, there's this Israeli commentator who knows Arabic and he's always posting videos in Arabic um, he's, he works for the Israeli, he's an officer in the Israeli army. Uh, and he was mocking um, Muslims both on both sides. Basically, you know, of course, you know, what type of Islam are you, are you representing? Yeah. Um, thank you. And then the, the last thing I was going to ask is it seems that like the examples where you were pointing out you know, you ask yourself, if I were in this situation, you know, some of the, what people were doing is very human. Like they, they make, you know, excuses for not following the prophet no. or they, you know, come up with justifications <clears throat> or they lie to themselves. And it seems that the issue is, um, which I see in our time too, is this lack of trust and the problem with surrender. And there's sort of a, a reality schism. It's kind of like, okay, yes, in theory, I believe in God and I trust in God and everything, you know, may Allah, you know, do whatever. But then when it actually comes to the reality of life, you know, you very quickly go, yeah, but you were talking about, you know, my job. We're talking about my relationship. We're talking about my family. We're talking about something, you know, and yes, God, it, it's, it's like the schism of, do you really trust in God? Well, yes, I do theoretically, but when it really comes down to it, I'm not sure, right? Right. So um, I guess my question is, what would you say to, you know, modern Muslims or Muslims in our time now that are having a difficulty with when it truly comes down to it? You know, it's like, yeah, I, I believe and I want my life to be about God, but, you know, come on, I just, you know, had this relationship end or I had, you know, I lost this job that I really cared about or my friend betrayed me and blah, 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 you know, and trying to think about how do I control the results instead of just letting go and surrendering and trusting, bringing that schism or closing that schism, I mean, right? The, the, the worst, I mean, a lot of people don't even get to this point, but if even they get to this point, the worst type of 
um, is the 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 worst type of relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the relationship that imputes to God a will that is subservient to your own. So when you when the idea that I might be doing something wrong and you assume that God is bound to forgive it. Those who forgive themselves before they're forgiven by God or those who, because they forgive themselves, they deem God as bound to forgive them. Most people don't even get to this point. Most people will think only about their emotions and not even think whether they are doing something that will require forgiveness. They will actually twist the will to say, what I'm doing is not wrong in the first place. So it doesn't need forgiveness because it's not wrong. Well, why isn't it wrong? Not because of any principle, not because of, is because it's not wrong because I see what I do as justified. So when I look at exigent circumstances, it's like, you know, those who cite exigent circumstances, exceptional circumstances, to say, well, what I deem what I decide or what I've done to be justified in my eyes. So that's the end of the inquiry. Now, if you have a little bit more piety than that, you then go a step further and you say, I deem it justified. So is it justified in God's eyes? Well, the sad reality is most people, most of the time say, well, it's justified in my eyes, so it's also justified in God's eyes. Now, if you have actually a little bit of transparency, honesty, sincerity, you pause and you say, well, it doesn't necessarily follow. I must, I might think it's justified. I might think it's forgivable, but is it necessarily so for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And the standard is due diligence. So you, you pretend, okay, I will appear before God and God will say, how much time have you, how much effort, how much energy have you spent on the question of verifying whether in fact I, Allah, deemed what you've done to be forgivable? If you were, what would a reasonable person do? A reasonable person would say, well, I would want to tell Allah I did best efforts, at least. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, you are God. I'm not, you know, I'm a human. I might have not guessed your will correctly, but at least I put in best efforts. I put in some hard work that, yashfali, that, that, that would act as my excuse. 
And so Allah might, even if you got the answer wrong, Allah sees that you've put in the effort, at least the effort at getting the answer right, and that's what you are banking on. It's the effort. But the truth of the matter is, most people don't even get there. Most people, simply because they feel X, Y, and Z, that's the end of it. They don't even get to the point, they don't even get to Allah. And because Allah is not real to them. I mean, Allah is just an abstraction that, like all abstractions, that, that if, if we're not accustomed to translating abstractions into lived examples, then it's like the rules of morality. We might not do something wrong because uh, of habit, of custom, of fear, of, you know, but not out of real engagement with morality. But even those who go, who have a bit more piety than that, to get beyond, well, you know, it's just my emotions, my personal circumstance define what is right and wrong, to actually thinking about God, sadly, most don't even put due diligence. They, they just assume that God's will is um, at, at their service. And, you know, this is, subhanAllah, the real test. Without fail, it's exactly as Surah Al-Hajj says. Without fail, these are also the people who worship God at an edge. You will find their their closeness or their lack of closeness to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala wavers by. It's as if you know if if things are happening, putting them in a. Uh, it's as if God is a you know is a is a kid playing with them. Astaghfirullah. Um, you know if they 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 feel good. They're in a good mood. They feel good about God. They they talk about as if they have real iman, and things go hard for them a little bit. Darkness sets in, and they can't even feel the relationship to what just yesterday they might have been talking about about you know their obligations towards God and what God is to them and so on. If you find yourself one of those people who worships God at an edge, then then know that this is a clear indication that you also are a person who treats God's will as subservient to your own. It, the two go together. You will never find someone who doesn't worship God on an edge who has a solid relationship with God, who takes God for granted, and vice versa. You won't find person a person who doesn't take God for granted, who would worship God at an edge. It's 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 a package deal. Okay, great. Oh, it's time for my group. We have fifteen minutes for my group. So should we take a, a break from my group? Are there more questions? 
So I one, just wanted to take one more round if anyone mm -hmm. has any questions. So I've got some now questions from, from the audience, but not, not a bunch. So. Okay, let's pray Maghrib and come back. Then. And come back, okay. And if, okay, anyone, we'll pray if you guys Maghrib. have any questions, send them through the chat too. Okay. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We are back. Um, <coughs> okay, so we're going to go now to some of the audience questions. Um, uh, okay, so for Surah Al-Fat, verse 17, Sheikh said that he'll come back to this point, but he never did. Oh, that's on recognizes that uh, people who um, uh, suffer from a handicap like limpness they have their limp in one leg or or they're blind or so on the um, the the context of this was twofold. One is that um, among the tribes that, uh, and, uh, okay, so in, in previous encounters, among the excuses that would uh, had been cited are people who would say um, they would cite as a handicap that they that they don't know how to fight and or that's what they they would say um, And again, the Prophet wouldn't, Alaihissalam wouldn't respond. The nature, I mean, Allah Alam, of course. I mean, what, how the different duties and functions were were specified, but there is a world of difference between those who have. A physical impediment that would actually make them um, uh, that would actually excuse them from fighting and excuses like we don't know how to fight which was not recognized and in fact I mean until the modern age uh, not known to have to fight was not um, the, the nature of fighting was very also different, but was not a recognized excuse. The other thing is that there were several times where people 
who has, did suffer from a handicap like blindness uh, would come to the Prophet and insist that they want to go out with the army. Um, now, you notice that verse 17 comes after, right after the in Surah Al-Fatih, it says that you will be called upon to fight a people who are tougher than you've ever fought before. And it sort of preempts this to preempts by defining what is a valid excuse and what is not a valid excuse. Um, and I think, I mean, because of the, the few situations that we know of that in which people who did suffer from an actual, you know, so we have someone who was blind who did come to the Prophet and wanted to, it, it, it insisted that he wanted to go out with the army. Uh, someone who um, had actually one arm, was on one armed, um, I think it, although they, they, some of them did in fact manage to get their way and go out, but at least in principle, the Quran comes and says, this is not, these are not the people that we, that God is talking about in terms of um, uh, copping out of the ordeal. Um, so, I mean, it was, I, I, I don't remember what, what, it, what I was saying I was going to come back to, but that's basically the, the background or the, the context <coughs> of the ayah. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, um, in Surah Hajj, um, the Sheikh spoke about the context for verses 52 through 54 as being about hesitations and doubts that people have regarding the moral mission of the revelation. In verse 52, Allah says he abrogates what shaitan suggests and fixes his ayat. What is Allah referring to here? What are the ayat and what? why is the term abrogation used regarding people's doubts and hesitations? Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh, I mean, because we are accustomed to reading the word ayah as meaning a verse of the Quran. But remember that ayatullah is used in the Quran as any form of all the different forms that Allah communicates um, with human beings. So, and notice how how this word وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِكَ مِنْ رَسُولٍ وَلَا نَبِيٍ إِلَّا إِذَا تَمَنَّ أَلْقَى الشَّيْطَانُ فِي أُمْنِيَتِهِ So إِلَّا إِذَا تَمَنَّ أَلْقَى الشَّيْطَانُ فِي أُمْنِيَتِهِ It's not that the shaytan it doesn't say that the shaytan uh, does anything to the actual revelation, doesn't specify that. It says, but if, but the shaitan affects or influences um, the, literally, the thinking or the um, 
aspirations of of the of the prophet. So, so Allah is saying time and again, Shaitan influences or attempts to influence the uh, plans, the goals, the aspirations, even if you will, if you say the fi um, it could be even be the, the mood, um, the feelings, all of that could be covered by إِذَا تَمَنَّى فِي أُمْنِيَتِهِ Then, after that, فَيَنْسَخُ اللَّهُ مَا يُلْقِ الشَّيْطَانِ So Allah, ينسخ here, again, later on, نَسْخْ gains the, the, the meaning abrogation in a very technical sense. But نَسْخْ, before it gained that highly technical meaning, just simply meant to replace something, to erase something and replace it with something else. So when that happened, when that the the feelings, the aspirations, the goals, the thinking is influenced by shaitan, then Allah replaces what shaitan, what, whatever influence shaitan has left, then Allah perfects Allah's ayat. The context, if you, if you forget the, the technical meaning of ayah as a verse in the Quran, and you place or, and you recall that ayat is used throughout the Quran as Allah's signs, Allah's communications. So Allah perfects yuhkim, that it's as if Allah makes sure that whatever the, not just what the, what the prophet utters, but even what this prophet feels, what this prophet plans, what this prophet does here, then would have that much broader meaning than just verses of the Quran. So Allah makes sure that whatever this prophet not just says in terms of revelation, and not just the prophet Muhammad, but all prophets, that what ultimately would they end up representing to people, what they end up the example they set for people, even the emotions that people pick up from them are so in, 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 Allah's direct relationship with the prophets because the prophets are Allah the, the context of, of the of the of the of the discourse here is that prophets are examples unto humanity. And so whatever influence shaitan might have on these prophets in terms of even their desires, Allah is bound to correct it. Um, 
it is, you know, the, the words yansach and the words ayat later on, much later on, gain the technical meaning of abrogation as a nasikh wal mansukh or the technical meaning as ayat al-Qur'an, you know, the, the verses of the Qur'an, um, and so on. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, um, for Surah Al-Fat, okay, in verses um, 3 and 7, to God belong the forces, troops of the heaven and earth. If things are always going to work out the way Allah wants them to, does this contradict being optimistic? Are we supposed to be realistic only or neutral? For example, just get the work done without anticipating anything, without ever being pessimistic or optimistic. What about people who make positive affirmations and are confident that things will go their way? What about the so-called law of attraction? I see that the people who abandoned the Prophet were being realistic. Their only flaw seems to be that they did not truly believe in the vision of the Prophet. Um, what verses did she say? I mean, or did he say? Three and seven. This is in, in, in Fats. Fat. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. That's why I, I stopped. I didn't say this. Um, yeah, I'm not sure um, why you're specifying three and seven. Um, because um, three simply the promise of victory to the prophet, unless uh, they got the wrong verses. Oh, maybe, yeah. And seven, the um, the uh, God. The, in, in fact, the, the heavens and earth, if God wants, become soldiers of God. Um, but I think that there's a broader question mm -hmm. about... Uh, can I... Uh, which one? Good. Um, oh, because to God belongs the forces, troops of the heavens. No, to God belongs the troops of heavens and earth. Um, it doesn't mean that the heavens and earth are always the troops of God or um, they do carry out God's will but the, in this particular area that if God wishes to turn the heavens and earth into soldiers of God this is a like telling us don't forget that you are not living on a neutral platform this platform could turn into an army of god carrying out god's will whatever that will is um whenever god wants um so it, it has a a a, a specific meaning in this context. But the larger question um, uh, 
being being optimistic how do uh, optimism is it's a certain type of optimism optimism in many ways is a sign of piety not it doesn't optimism doesn't mean that you believe that whatever your will is whatever your whim is is going to actually come true optimism is that you or the type of optimism that is grounded in piety is that you ask Allah to present you your will if it is what is best and ultimately you are happy with whatever Allah presents so truly pious people you will always find that they are very content not that they don't aspire, not that they don't hope, not that they don't plan. They do. And in fact, they will always tell you, you know, I trust that, I have complete trust that if this is the best for me, Allah will in fact make it happen. But if it doesn't, and if Allah I, Allah's will always makes me happy. So you can aspire, you can plan, you can hope, you, uh, you can have a, a, a bright outlook. And in fact, the, the, that is a sign that you are at peace with your existence, that you are not at war with existence, with your existence. As long as if you don't get your way, it doesn't become a, you don't act like a tyrant with your own existence. Meaning that if I don't get my way, then I am angry and upset and resentful. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, it's, um, uh, I see the people, oh, about, yeah, about the, the, um, it, it is not a small thing that the, for the Prophet, والسلام, to have a vision, um, and for you to ignore it. This is, Again, this comes from part of, it's one thing if you don't believe in, in the person as a prophet. So that is, their, their sin is the hypocrisy of saying we believe in the, what the, you are in fact getting your orders from God 
and for the Prophet ﷺ to tell them this is God's will and for them to say, well, although we said we believe you represent God's will, but we're going to ignore it anyway. That is the problem. So, you know, if I, if I believe that my mother is connected to God and she and it's and she comes to me and she says i want you to do x and i ask her is this your opinion or do you know this to be god's will and she says no it's my opinion then it's i take it or leave it if she says no i know this to be god's will the only question then becomes do I really believe, believe that my mother represents God's will or not? If I do, then I should not have an option. If I don't believe that she represents God's will, that's a different matter. Then I can tell my mother with all due respect, but you know, I don't believe that you can represent God's will. I don't believe that you know what God's will is. That's a separate matter. If they would have gone to the Prophet ﷺ and said, well, you know, your vision is just, you know, you've ate something that night and you had a stomachache. Um, it's not from God. Then they would have confessed their lack of belief and that, that they would be like the hypocrites who incidentally are not even mentioned in the... in." Um, Surah Al-Fatih, which is interesting enough that the, 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 you know, the, the, the typical hypocritical bunch who never really didn't sincerely say or didn't represent, they, they were always the dissenting faction and always opposing the Prophet and so on. They, they're like, they, no one even bothered inviting them to Hajj. Um, but it is the fact that they claim they believe and they're told that this is God's will, and they said, well, you know, we, we have another opinion. If it is one of the most liberating things, I wish, uh, I mean, I wish we raised our, our, generations of Muslims on this idea. One of the most liberating things is to be told, be honest with God and be consistent with God. If, because then you can identify points of weakness of faith in yourself. But to say, I believe and I trust but then give yourself the freedom not to follow through on what you say you believe in, you become exactly like those the Quran describes, those who say but do not do. Those who learn that there is a huge disparity between what they claim their convictions are and what their actions evidence in terms of their conviction your actions 
must always be an affirmation of your true convictions. The sooner you learn to interrogate your actions because they are the true evidence of what you really believe, the sooner you start evolving as a moral human being because it becomes quite simple. If I am acting immorally, then I am immoral. Most human beings, this is actually something that, you know, very surprised me when I, in the legal field, is that to discover that most criminals never actually come to terms with the fact that they committed crimes. They commit crimes and they never, the, the reason they don't plead guilty is because they actually never confess, most never confess that they're actually guilty of whatever they've committed. And the most criminals actually continue believing that they're good people. You know, I'm talking about murderers and rapists and, you know, thieves and people who commit horrible assaults. They actually, you know, I've had conversations with people who it was clear they're guilty of rape, but they talk to you as if they're essentially a good human being. I've actually, I've read a book uh, of a serial killer who talks about being a fundamentally a nice person who just had a minor problem. He just killed nine women, that's all. And Jesus was waiting to welcome him with open arms because, you know, he knows, he, in the book he says, you know, in the interview he says, I know where I'm going to go when I die because, you know, uh, Jesus is, I've always loved Jesus. Yes, I've killed nine women, but I've always loved Jesus, and I and and I know that you know Jesus is waiting to. Human beings, the immorality, is built on dishonesty, and that's what the the Quran roots out. Don't get accustomed to being a deceitful human being. Most of all, to deceitful towards yourself and your God. Um, we actually are out of questions, um, and so and we're close to. That's the a good end. thing. Yeah, <laughs> so we, we finished before ten o'clock. Um, so just one last call if anybody has any any last questions. I feel like um, you know, especially with you've spoken a lot about Hajj and the situ you know the condition of Hajj right now. I don't know if you. Um, have any last thoughts? Because obviously we live in a time when things are hajjas. Obviously, if, if you know, if Prophet Muhammad were to come back to life, you know, peace be upon him, and you know, as you've said many times, he would be mortified by the state of Hajj, and you know, it leaves us in a in a really difficult position. I know there are a lot of people who feel that 
on the one hand, they completely agree with the idea that, you know, okay, the control of Hajj is in, in unclean hands, and yet at the same time they feel unable to say, well, yes, but this is one of the pillars. How can I make that choice to not go, even though I believe that? I wonder if we, maybe we could finish on just some thoughts on that, because we have had people ask that question before. I mean, you, no one is saying that Hajj is not, Hajj remains a, a pillar and and in fact all it means is that we are we have an obligation I mean can you imagine if Muslims would have understood from the beginning when from the the 1930s when they knew they knew that the Wahhabis had committed massacres and had destroyed, even destroyed grave sites of the companions and, and had destroyed mosques of the companions. They knew that. And they knew that the Wahhabis had massacred Shia, have massacred Sufis, have massacred even they used to massacre Shafi'i Shiyukh and Hanafi Shiyukh and Maliki Shiyukh. And can you imagine from the 1930s if Muslims would have said, okay, we can't do Hajj. By now, this, the, the fate of Mecca would have been very different because, because Muslims accepted the moral compromise of, okay, yeah, we know they're horrible, we know they're murderers, we know they're fanatics, we know they're this, we know they're that, but we're going to go do Hajj anyway and we're going to put all this money in their hands. It kept getting worse and worse and more Islamic heritage sites got destroyed to the point that the house of say of Satina Aisha, Aisha, Khadija's home, sorry. Khadija's home is now toilets. It kept getting worse year after year after year after year. And it, we don't, Shaitan doesn't go from zero to 100 overnight. So maybe if God sees that we are resolved to liberate our holy sites, both Jerusalem and Mecca and Medina. Maybe God will actually help us. You know, so that's one. Two, it's, do you know what it means to come to terms? I mean, it's also part of the, to come to terms with the fact that you will leave this earth and 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 you say to yourself, you know, I'm probably not going to see Mecca and Medina again. It, it 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 kills you, especially if you visited them already, because once you, of course, you know, Alhamdulillah, I I haven't seen Mecca after it became Las Vegas. That's one of the things I'm I'm very grateful for. You know, after we we were. You know, in all the books of Sharia, we were learning from the time we were, you know, children. 
no building is allowed in Mecca that is higher than the Kaaba. And suddenly the same shiuch that used to write these fatawa in an instant dropped it just because, you know, a, 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 a corrupt ruler told them to drop it. Anyway, to have a sincere intent, and Allah knows your intent. If Allah knows that if you had the ability that to, to go to Hajj, you wouldn't have gone, then God will hold you accountable for that. But if Allah knows that in your heart you sincerely, if 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 you if if you had the ability because Mecca was in clean hands, you would have gone. Of course, Allah knows what is in your heart. But don't forget that what critical to this is that the money that you were going to spend on Hajj that was going to go to this Hindu nationalistic company that is planning on genocide in India and that even is in bed and now funding Islamophobes all over the West, that this money that you put it apart and you spend it on Islamic, truly Islamic causes. This is critical because if, if Allah knows that you had the means and you just simply forgot the, 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 uh, that fifth pillar of Islam, that's a that's a very heavy responsibility and there heavy accountability and you know if a miracle happens and the 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 Saudis actually recognize that what they're doing is haram and mm. sit with Muslims and actually negotiate terms to clean up their act Maybe this would be a different situation, but right now it, it is just abysmal. I mean, the, the the money that is given to these people goes to slaughtering people to continue on the genocide in Yemen that we are all aware of, that continue on to the sworn war by the Saudis and the, the Emiratis against all forms of liberty and democracy and human rights all over the Muslim world goes Saudi Arabia just this year executed more people than it ever executed in any previous year since its founding and many of those executed were minors and no consequences no one says anything. I mean, this is the, the supposed custodians of the two holy sites imprisoned shiuch of the caliber of Salman al-Oda and Hassan Farhan al-Malki. What's left? I mean, they took all the clergy who were truly God-fearing, had any advanced level of knowledge, and threw them in prison. Killing them is slow, agonizing death. 
And only the only shiuch who are not in prison are the ones who are kissing up to MBS and to the Saudi government. And no consequences. No one says, okay, you know, we're not going to put, we're not going to spend a single dollar supporting you until at a minimum you, you release all these Muslim scholars. No, it's, uh, you know, at what point do you make a stand? I think we Muslims should have made a stand from the time that, from the 1930s, when Britain dictated that it's the Wahhabis who are going to be the controllers of Mecca. I mean, so Britain dictated that Palestine belongs to Israel, to the Zionists, and that Mecca belongs to the Wahhabis. And that even in India, Britain, British colonialism is the one that re-brought to the fore the, uh, or the um, um, sorry, Hindi. The, the, in order to fight the Islamic influence in India, we Muslims kept turning the other, kept ignoring all the signs that there is a systematic war against Islam that that is intended to obliterate Islam from its very core, from Jerusalem to Mecca to Medina to the to a, a, a once very influential part of the Muslim world, India, and, and we kept ignoring it and ignoring it, and that's where we are now today. At what point do we start saying, okay, enough is enough. Now we've got to be serious. We, we have to stop dealing with the world like we're children who are historically challenged, morally challenged, philosophically challenged, so anthropologically challenged. I mean, challenged at every level that matters. And what do we care about out of all of this? Hijab and Shia and Sunnah and I mean, Well, that's that's a good place to end it. Not a happy note, but a real note. Yeah, and real. you know, inshallah, this is it, it begins with understanding the truth and what's happening and what needs to change. So alhamdulillah, thank you so much, Sheikh, as always, for an amazing Q&A session. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. We look forward to being together again in a week's time where, inshallah, we will have a new surah. And, uh, you know, we only have three surahs left that have not been touched, either through Project Illumin or line by line, um, and a whole bunch of shorter ones that haven't been touched by Project Illumin. So we will see, inshallah, what Saturday holds. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Wonderful to see you. And assalamu uh, alaikum. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum.